Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of December 16th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. This morning as we have already encountered the readings and the the Advent candle, we are on the, the Advent topic of joy this morning. We think of the word joy, there might be any number of things that come in uh, to your mind. It might be the joy of faces of Christmas morning as kids open up their presents to see those things they've been waiting for, for for so many months or for so many weeks. It might be just the joy of getting something you know you've been looking for for a long time. We have all kinds of things in our mind when we think of the word joy. We might think of people jumping up and down and going, woohoo! Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe it's just simple that simply that 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 quiet satisfaction of knowing that things have worked out the way you hoped they would. But we all probably have all kinds of things in our minds when we think of the word joy. Something we look forward to, something we want, something we probably want more of. And as the last couple of weeks we've been looking at this idea of Advent, the idea that the people of God were waiting for Him to arrive. And even as Advent means the coming, we are waiting for the coming or the arrival of God's chosen one. The people of, people of Israel, they waited for God to rescue them from slavery in Egypt. They waited for 400 years. And I would imagine the joy upon getting out of Egypt was probably more than we can even understand or express this morning. For nearly 400 years again, God had been silent and not sent a prophet or sent any word to the people of Israel to the point that they were longing for and begging for and even naming their children after uh, the name of God's salvation waiting for God to send the Messiah that eventually came in the person of Jesus. So God's people have been waiting for a long time for Him to do certain things. And even this morning, like we've talked about the last couple of weeks, we are waiting for the return of the Messiah. Now we aren't, we aren't waiting for deliverance from slavery the way the people of Egypt were so long, the people of Israel were so long ago. We've been delivered from our sins and since we are already free. We aren't waiting for God to speak and to show up the way the people of Israel were in the first century because God has already arrived and we this morning know Him in the person of Christ and hopefully He lives within our hearts this morning. But we are still a people who are waiting. We are waiting for the return of the Messiah. We are waiting for that day when there is no more death and when there is no more sorrow and when the light of the sun is no longer needed because our God is present, and He lights up everything. And that day will be filled with more joy than we can possibly imagine. Can you imagine a lifetime, maybe some of you can, a lifetime of waiting for God to appear, of praying and begging for Him, saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And then there comes a day when He arrives. Oh, what a day of joy that will be. And so as we come to the book of Romans, this is maybe not a passage we're thinking about in Christmas terms, but it's a, it's a passage that speaks of the joy that comes from knowing our Savior. I want to begin reading this morning, Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, 
to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. As it's written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, as we continue this morning looking in this word that you've given us, may you fill us not only with hope and peace, not only may we be a people who endure and wait, but may we be a people filled with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Joy is mentioned a lot in scriptures. Joy is mentioned time and time again by the Apostle Paul himself. Even in this book of Romans, if we were to go back to Romans chapter 14, he would say this, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, joy is not found in eating or drinking. Now, I've got to admit, sometimes I find some joy in, in eating anyway. <laughs> But he's saying joy is not necessarily found in the eating and drinking. It's found in the Holy Spirit. It's found in the presence of God. If we were to go to 1 Thessalonians, another of Paul's letters, he would link again in his letter to the saints of Thessalonica. He would say this, You become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now you and I probably wouldn't necessarily associate tribulation and trials and hardship with joy. But Paul does in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Why is that? Because joy isn't just about our immediate circumstances. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he also talks about how joy comes in spite of all circumstances. Joy comes in the heart of a person who knows that they are made right with God, who is whole and well with Him. In Galatians chapter 5, joy is actually listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, joy is to be something that happens in our lives, in our hearts, simply because we know the Lord. It's, it's a product of knowing God, the fact that there is joy in our hearts and joy in our lives. Nehemiah, Old Testament. Nehemiah, the people of Israel, as they're gathered together, they have rebuilt a temple in Jerusalem. They have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem after a century of, 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 of captivity and, and difficulty. And as the people of Israel are gathered together and they read the word, it says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. God calls us to a life of joy. Whether we're enduring tribulation and hardship and grief, or whether we're celebrating the renewal of the temple. He calls us to a life of joy. Luke chapter 2. The angels have appeared to the shepherds in the middle of the night, and they say, I bring you good news of great joy. So what is this joy that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 5, that the angels speak of in Luke chapter 2, that Jesus spoke of, that Nehemiah spoke of in 
in his book in chapter 8. What is this joy? Well, the first thing we need to understand this morning is this, this joy is not a joy of this world. It's a joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Not a joy in your, in your great Sunday afternoon meal. And maybe you've got a great Sunday afternoon meal coming and you're going to enjoy that, but that's not the joy we're talking about here. We're not talking about joy that comes from some great achievement at work or, um, uh, you know, I, I know I uh, saw Brady graduate yesterday. Was there some joy in there yesterday? Or maybe there was just, <laughs> maybe there was just relief. <laughs> it's not joy that comes from some great accomplishment. It's not joy from seeing someone you care about do something fantastic. It's not joy in some great athletic achievement of a team you want to root for. It's not joy based upon any of these things. It's a joy that is of the Lord. It comes from heaven. It's a divine, godly joy. You know, it seems that from the very moment man fell, the man rebelled against God, that we sinned. And we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That we have looked for the joy of heaven. We have looked for the joy of God in almost every place other than God. Charles Spurgeon wrote that when God cursed the serpent, told him that he would be crawling on the ground, that he'd be eating of the dust of the earth, that in many ways we as, as human beings have in some sense followed Satan's curse and we have found ourselves treasuring and finding our joy or at least trying to find our joy in the dust of the earth. In other words, the things of this world. It was actually a curse that God gave to Satan to do that. And yet how many times do we find ourselves finding our delight in the appetites of the things of this world? Settling, settling for the things that are temporary and fleeting and don't last instead of the things of God. And more importantly, instead of God Himself. You know, the greatest thing, or the worst thing that happened to Adam and Eve when they left the garden was the actual fact that they had been separated from the continual presence of God Himself. It wasn't the fact that they were going to have to work a little harder to, to get food. It wasn't the fact that, as God told Eve, that her curse was to have pain in childbirth. I believe the worst thing that happened to Adam and Eve was the fact that God removed His continual presence from them. He said, leave me, leave the garden, set the angels up and said they couldn't come back. That had to be the greatest, the greatest punishment that could ever be. You can imagine as a child, it's one thing if your parents were to punish you, maybe to ground you or to take away a toy or, I don't know, even spank. Does that still happen? <laughs> oh, okay. But I think the worst thing for a child wouldn't be a spanking or wouldn't be a grounding. It would be mom and dad saying, I don't want you in my house anymore. The, the hardest thing for Adam and Eve was not the curse of hard work or toil. It was God saying, leave the garden. It was the fact that no more would they have those walks in the afternoons that they talked about because they had turned their backs on him. The truth is, the joy that God speaks of is a joy that finds itself in God's presence. The joy of the Lord springs from God and has God for its object. Not the achievement of a team or not the achievement of a goal. It has God as its object. 
that we find light in Him and His presence over and over and over again in the Psalms in particular. You will see David say, I long for or I want nothing more than God to dwell with you in your tabernacle. God, I want nothing more than to see you face to face. Moses asked God at one point, Lord, can I see your face? And the people of God, from the time they've been separated from Him in the Garden of Eden till today, their greatest desire, whether we know how to express it or not, or whether we even know how to articulate it or not, is the very presence of God Himself. What will make heaven so great? And listen, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the, uh, my loved ones that I have, have passed along, and that's going to be a great joy in heaven. But the greatest joy in heaven will not be a mansion. The greatest joy in heaven won't be streets of gold. The greatest joy in heaven won't even be seeing my grandpa. The greatest joy in heaven will be seeing my God face to face. Oh, and that's a joy that means has nothing to do with the circumstances of this world. It's a joy that springs from Him. The joy of the Lord has has its source from God, and it has God as its object. It means that He's what I want, and He's where I find my joy. As, As a man of God, as a woman of God, that joy comes from the fact that I can say this. All the attributes of God, His his, his holiness, His righteousness, His wisdom, His faithfulness, His love, His mercy, His gratitude, and we could go on and on with the attributes of God. All those things that God possesses, all those things are now mine. All the things that God possesses, all the things that, that He has become ours as He adopts us and brings us into His family. They are now ours to have. He's a God who cannot lie. He's faithful and He's true. He is a God who loves us and shows us kindness and mercy. He is supremely holy. And as you and I think about the God that we desire, the God who has saved us, how can we not be drawn to joy that this God looked at us, looked at you, looked at me and said, I am love you. Maybe some of you who have been married for many, many years. (laughs) Those of you maybe who have been married for less. Maybe you can remember when you first met or were dating or getting to know your your now husband or your now wife. You remember the thrill, that joy of finding out that someone you cared about actually kind of liked you too. Y'all remember that? Oh, I hope so. I mean, let's that's, that's face it. You know, everybody thinks they're kind of the alone in this, but every single one of us, girl, guy, we're always nervous that the one we like won't like us back. And when we find they do, it's a chill, isn't it? Imagine this. The God of the universe, the God who spoke things into existence. who is the object of our desire, who is what we were created to love, says, I love you. And not only has He said it, He has acted and done everything He can to demonstrate it for us. How can it not make us full of joy this morning? How can it not make us glad to know that God has loved us so much, even though we turned our backs on Him He has offered us forgiveness. 
How can it not fill our hearts with joy this morning to know that the God that we turned our backs on came to us so that our sin could be taken care of and we could be, again, in His presence. That there's no longer, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, there is no longer any judgment. There's no longer any condemnation. There's no longer another shoe to fall or something bad around the corner. That we have simply the love of our God. And He is not a God who is just... And maybe we can understand this. He's not a God who just looked at us and had pity. You know, we, we can understand that the God of the universe will look at us and go, oh, you poor little thing. I, I can understand that. I can see God looking at me and going, man, you poor little thing. You poor thing. I feel sorry for you. Your life is pathetic. You sinned against me. You don't have this. You can't do this. I can see God having pity on me. And by the way, He did. I can see God feeling sorry for me. I can see God looking down on me and thinking to Himself, that poor little guy. But what's harder to imagine is that God would look at me face to face, eye to eye, and say, hey, all that aside, I don't just feel sorry for you. I don't just feel pity for you. I actually love you. Because I made you in my image. I made you to know me and for you, or for me to know you. That's something altogether different. This joy that we speak of in Romans chapter 5 is, is a divine joy. It's a joy of the Lord. Verse 5 again, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you. Now, as we look at this whole passage here, we're going to see a couple things here that, that uh, we're going to get to. But let's, let's get first of all to verse 13. That's, we're going to go to the end of the passage that we looked at. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. So we've already talked about that. This is a, this is a joy that comes from God himself and has God as its object. He also says this in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So this joy he's speaking of, and we've, again, we've talked about peace and hope the last couple of weeks. This joy that he's speaking of comes in what? It comes in believing. Now he just kind of leaves it there. He kind of leaves a comma. He just kind of leaves it hanging. Believing what? Well, if we were to go through the first 14 chapters of Romans, we would get an idea. And we're not going to go through all of the book of Romans this morning. But in short, what is the book of Romans talking about? The book of Romans is talking about exactly what I just mentioned a second ago. That God has, from before time began, before He created the universe, before He formed the world, before He formed the fish and the, and the birds and the animals, before He threw the stars into the sky, before He created the sun and the moon, before He did all those things, God had a plan. And His plan was to create and to redeem us. Now think about that. That's that's remarkable. So God has this plan. And this plan included, as He created, the fact that even though He knew we would sin, that before, uh, before we did that, He had planned to send Christ, who would in fact die for our sins, pay the price for our rebellion, raise back to life, defeating death, and that He would bring us into that. That was His plan. And that, I'm summing up a lot of Romans right there, all right? At the book of Romans in a nutshell... God loves you, sent Christ to die for your sins and to save you. That's, that's Romans in a nutshell. That's a really big nutshell, I get, but that's Romans in a nutshell. And so he says this, May the God of, of, of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing this. The object of our desire, the object of our joy, 
isn't the things of this world that can be taken away. It is the eternal plan of God to save us. The things of this world, whether it be a good meal or a great accomplishment, they can come and go. Jobs come and go. Achievements come and go. Things come and go. God's plan and salvation is eternal and can never be taken away. So there is joy in belief. Now, in particular, in these previous verses, before Romans chapter 5, verse 13, in these previous several verses, Paul's actually making a, a kind of a specific point. Now, one of the things that was happening in the, in the Roman church that was happening actually all throughout the early part of the church's history. We'll call it the first century church, okay? So all, one of the consistent things that was happening in the first 60, 70, 80 years of the, of the Christian church was there was a division between Gentiles, and by the way, I think most of us in this room this morning are Gentiles, Gentiles and Jews. The Jewish people were looking at, uh, at, at God's work amongst non-Jews, and again, that's us, and saying, we don't understand how God could do this. We don't think that God's right. Well, we don't think that's right. We think that before you can come to Christ, you have to become a Jew first. Now, to us, that might seem somewhat foreign because this is no longer an issue today. But in the first century church, the biggest issue was this racial, ethnic, cultural divide between Jew and Gentile. And the Jews wanted to make everyone essentially convert to become a Jew before they could come to Christ. And so you had this ongoing tension in the church, and they didn't get along. More than, time, more than one time, we see throughout the New Testament that you had this conflict between Jew and Gentile, and they had a hard time worshiping God together. Now again, I know that's not an issue for us today. We kind of think, what's the big deal? But then, that was the thing. They were divided. They hated each other. They fought over it. And so one of the things that Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 15 is he says this. It was part of God's plan from before he created the world to bring the Gentiles into his family. See, what God did was this. He says this in verse, um, verse 8. He says, I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. What he's saying here is this. God came, or Christ came, as a servant to the Jewish people to affirm or to confirm for them all the promises that God had made to them. So he's recognizing God had made specific promises to the nation of Israel, and Jesus came to fulfill and confirm those promises, to prove that God was, in fact, at work, to prove that God hadn't forgotten them. But Paul goes on to say, and to the Gentiles, in verse 9, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes Several Old Testament passages in the next several verses. Those, those next several verses are quotes from Isaiah and other passages in the Old Testament. And he uses these quotes as a way of saying, from the very beginning, it was God's plan, not just to keep his promises to the people of Israel, but to also one day take the Gentiles and to bring them into the family and make them part of what God's plan is. So you and I are here this morning because God had a plan. His plan included making some promises to Israel and doing some things through them. But his promise also was to bring those of us, like us in this room this morning, 
into the plan and to not leave us behind. You and I, we find joy this morning in the fact that we did not get left behind. Anybody ever been left one of the scariest things as a youth pastor, and I, I was a youth pastor for years, one of the scariest things as a youth pastor is to leave on a trip and forget one of the teenagers back where you were at. I'm telling you, this is scary. Alan knows what I'm talking about here. Was it, was it, uh, we, were, we were in Cincinnati, I think. Yeah, it, it, was, it was Cincinnati. We were, on, we were on a mission trip in Cincinnati. This is, okay, so right before we came here. All right, so 2016. Now, Year four, 2000, yeah, 2016, not 2017. Whatever, several years ago. Y'all, y'all recognize this problem, trying to remember when something happened. Y'all, yeah, okay. So we're on a mission trip. We've been in Ohio. We're actually in Cincinnati, and we've stopped. We're, we're actually spending the night in Cincinnati, and we, we're getting a hotel. We're, we've gone to a couple different restaurants, a couple of fast food places. And we've left the fast food restaurants, and we're back at the hotel getting ready to start a meeting. And all of a sudden, we realize someone's not there. I think she was, a, I think that time she was a, yeah, she called, she actually had to call us. I'm telling you, that's the worst feeling in the world. You kind of go into yourself, parents have trusted me with their kids, and I've got their kids hundreds of miles away from home, and I left one of them at a steak and shake or fast food, whatever it was, it was a fast food restaurant. I left them there. You feel about this big. Of course, the only thing worse than being the one leaving somebody behind is the one left behind. Can you imagine, you know, Imagine before cell phones, what happens? <laughs> she had a cell phone. Come get me! God never leaves us behind. There's joy in that. There's peace in that. God has made a plan. He doesn't forget us. He doesn't leave us behind. He brings us in. So the plan here that Paul's talking about here is, he said, listen, Christ himself came, and Christ came. Not only did he come, he, he didn't just come to earth and say, God's here. I mean, I, I mean if I'm making a plan, that's probably what I'd do. You know, if I'm, if I'm God, I'm showing up, hey guys, I'm here. It's time to get with it. No, Jesus came in the form of a baby, didn't he? He came as one of us, the God of the universe came as a baby. The God of the universe submitted submitted his own body, his own existence to things like hunger and sleeplessness and fatigue. The God of the universe became a servant, the Bible says, and served you and I. He became, he, he didn't become, when he came here, he didn't become the greatest person who'd ever lived. He didn't become a mighty king leading armies. He didn't show up 2,000 years ago as a, as a conquering hero, he showed up as a, as a baby, as a servant, as one the Bible describes as nothing remarkable to look at. He came as one of us and not even a particularly famous or particularly prestigious or good-looking one. He just came as, as a person. And he submitted himself not only to us in that way, but he endured the mockings and the tauntings and the beatings. He endured the whippings and ultimately he endured crucifixion. He became these things, not as one human to another, but he became these things as the God who spoke the universe into existence. He he came down to that level because he didn't want to leave us 
behind. So he says to us in Romans chapter 15, that this belief, this joy is from him, there's the joy of this belief, that this belief means this is the things that God has done for us. And in the context of Romans 15, he says there is joy in God's people being brought together. Now, maybe we don't think about that necessarily. Oh, well, joy is from God, and God is this object. We, we have joy because he's here and because we want to pursue him. We find our joy in God's presence. And we, we recognize that faith and belief would be a part of that. But there's also something else that he's getting at in Romans chapter 5, or 15, I'm sorry. And that is this, that there is joy in the unity of God's people. Now, why, why is that a big deal here? Well, let me, let me put it this way. As a believer in Christ, the Bible says that once I place my faith in Christ, who comes and lives within my heart? The Spirit Himself. God Himself comes and lives within me, right? So if God Himself comes and lives within me, and God Himself comes and lives within you, let's think about this. Let's connect this dot now. God lives within me. God lives within you. There's going to be a joy when we love each other. Christ in me has to love Christ in you. Doesn't mean you may not annoy me from time to time. <laughs> Doesn't mean I might not annoy you from time to time. But guess what? We have to love one another. And in fact, Christ's example was he emptied himself. He became a completely selfless individual. Because when Christ came on earth, he put the wants of the Father in front of him. He put our needs in front of his own comfort. It wasn't the most convenient thing for Christ to come to earth and be crucified. And yet he served the Father and he served us. And therein is our example. And therein is one of the things that Paul's talking about here. There is joy when you and I lead selfless lives. Now that's contrary to what the world tells us, isn't it? The world tells us that if you want to be happy, you serve yourself. If you want to be happy, go get all the things that you want. You don't worry about anybody else. You get what you deserve. You go out and you get what you want. That's how the world says you're to be happy. And God says, if you want to have joy, an eternal joy, lay yourself aside and be selfless and have your object be God and serve and love others. Doesn't mean it's the easiest thing to do, but there is, in fact, joy in that. The Christmas story itself is a story, again, of Christ emptying himself and being selfless and coming to earth and becoming one of us. And so Paul's talking about that in Romans chapter 15. He says, listen, God did that for the Jews. He did that for the Gentiles. You guys have to love one another because it's the same God doing work in both of your lives. It's the same, job, same God keeping promises here same God being merciful and kind here. And you'll find joy, he says, and God is the object of your, of your life. You'll find joy and faith in his plan, and you'll find joy in being selfless and loving one another. It's interesting the things that we will let divide us, isn't it? The first century church was divided by race, by ethnicity, Jew versus Gentile. 
I've seen churches divide over the color of carpet. I've seen churches, I've seen people get mad at each other over what music was played or wasn't played. I've seen people be divided over race and culture and looks and how much money someone made or didn't make. I've seen churches divide over issues of geography, where people are from. Paul says these things shouldn't divide any of us. In fact, if there's one place in this world where it shouldn't matter what color you are, how much money you have, what music you like, what your culture came from, it should be the church. We should be the place on earth where everyone who looks and is different from one another comes in unity, loving one another, worshiping the God. By the way, odds are really good that in heaven one day, assuming you're there, (laughs) that you're going to be worshiping God next to somebody who doesn't look like you. Odds are you'll be worshiping God with someone who spoke a different language than you when they were here on earth. Odds are you'll be worshiping with someone who liked different music than you did. You'll be worshiping someone or worshiping with someone alongside someone who had a markedly different culture than you. I said the, the American Christians, there's, while there's been a lot of American Christians through the years, we are actually in the minority of the amount of Christians throughout history. The United States has existed for, what, 225, 227, 230, 40 years? That's not very long. I mean, there have been Christians around for at least 2,000 years. And even today, the majority of Christians in this world do not live in the United States. They live elsewhere. They live in places like Brazil and South Korea. They live in places all over Southern Africa, even in places like Iran and Iraq. One of the remarkable things about the church is it is to be a people who are selflessly loving one another. And in that selflessly loving one another, find joy. Joy to the world. The joy this morning we have is a joy that comes and finds its source in God. And since God can either be destroyed or taken away, it's a joy that can never be removed from us. It's a joy that comes from Him. It's a joy that finds its joy in seeing Him face to face. It's a joy that comes from faith in His plan. It's a joy that comes from being selfless and focused upon others. That's the joy of Christmas.